It's a privilege to be with you again at St. Philip's this morning. Well, it's been a very interesting week, <coughs> excuse me, to be a Christian in Australia. I guess most of us, if, unless you've been living in a hole this week, have been aware that a guy called Andrew Thorburn, uh, my name's Tim Thorburn, but we're not related, same surname, that's just coincidence. Uh, he was the CEO of National Australia Bank, um, and this week was appointed as the CEO of the Essendon Football Club. And then he was sacked the next day, thrown to the Lions. Why? Because of his association with an Anglican church in Melbourne, a church that has taught pretty much bog-standard Christian ethics and doctrine, um, and as far as I can tell, done that in a very sensitive and gracious way. But that led to his sacking. Now, there's a lot of complexities to the issue that I don't want to particularly go on to. There's his history at NAB. There's the incompetence of the uh, board of Essendon uh, Football Club. Um, There's issues around, was his sacking illegal? Was it religious discrimination? But whatever, one thing I think has become clear for most of us, that is, to be a Christian in Australia today is becoming dangerous. Dangerous to employment dangerous to your reputation in the society. Now, some of us, I think, have experienced some of that firsthand. I've met many Christians who've uh, been treated badly or had their reputations tarnished because of their connection with Jesus, with being Christian. Other of us might be uh, blissfully unaware of all that till this week. But it is, I think, becoming increasingly obvious that to be loyal to Jesus Christ is to be out of step with our world, with our country, with Cottesloe. So far out of step that many people think of Christians as the bad guys. Bigoted, hate-filled, vile people, as Dan Andrews uh, uh, talked about them this week. And all we need is one person to sort of blow the whistle on us and the whole world will stack on us. And that's scary. That's difficult. How does God want us to respond? If you're a follower of God, a a follower of Jesus, does he want us to create our own little ghetto away somewhere, off on our own, you know, buy a suburb or move there, create our own little world? Should we fight hard against the forces of secularism, go into bat uh, in the media and everywhere else we can? Or should we sort of compromise, just lay low, let it all flow over us? Just think maybe we're on the wrong side of history. Let's keep our heads down. We, we feel like misfits. At least that's what it's felt like for me this week. Well, this morning we're beginning a series uh, in the book of Daniel. And if there's any book in the Old Testament that addresses our situation, I think it's the book of Daniel. Because we meet four young Jewish men from the tribe of, of Judah, Israelites, transported to Babylon as exiles, basically arrested, transported. They're away from home. They're a minority, a very small minority, living in a pagan world, a world that doesn't believe in their God, a world that thinks they're stupid for their loyalty to him. Now, where are we? Uh, Well, Daniel chapter 1, 1 and 2 paint the historical picture. They give us the context The third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power 
as well as some of the vessels of the house of God, some of the gold uh, things that were used in the temple. These he brought to the land of Shinar of Babylon and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Where in about 600 BC, if you are familiar with timelines, now about 400 years before this, Israel was one of the budding superpowers of the ancient world under King David and Solomon. But now it is very much just a shadow of its former glory. It's constantly caught between the superpowers of uh, Assyria and Egypt and now Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was a brilliant, ambitious, brutal king. He marched on Jerusalem three times within 20 years or so. This was the second one when Jehoiakim was king of Judah. He had the temerity to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, so he sent the army in and crushed Jerusalem, executed Jehoiakim. He looted the temple of God, of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He carted the elite back into captivity, including Daniel and his mates. And he takes the gold uh, uh, treasures from the temple in Jerusalem and he puts them in in the temple of his favorite god, Marduk. Do you see what he's saying? Nebuchadnezzar is saying to every Israelite, your God is useless. Might be a nice pet, but in this real world, he's no no match for me, no match for Marduk. You guys are on the wrong side of history. But where is the God of Daniel? Is he lost in action? Is he outgunned? Is he outmuscled? Has he been sidelined by Nebuchadnezzar? Well, listen again, verse 2. It was the Lord, it was God who handed over Jehoiakim to Nebuchadnezzar. What Nebuchadnezzar did wasn't his power. It wasn't bending Yahweh into his submission. He was doing Yahweh's will. God had bent him into submission. Now, you might say, oh, come on, this is just a rewriting of history, isn't it? Surely afterwards you can look back and, and, sort of, uh, and put a silver lining on it. No. Habakkuk and Jeremiah and Isaiah, well before this happened, said it was going to happen, that God was going to raise up the Babylonians to come and bring the judgment of God against his own people, against their faithlessness, their idolatry, their corruption. It was the Lord who handed Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. What difference does that make? Well, that makes all the difference in the world. So if Yahweh is left behind bloodied and beaten by Nebuchadnezzar, then it's pretty foolish to maintain your loyalty to him, your hope in him. You really will be on the wrong side of history. But if Yahweh is the most, sorry, if Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world, has been given his power by God, his victories by God, then God can remove him when he wants to. God will remove him when he wants to. And to live as if Nebuchadnezzar, as if Babylon is the last word, is short-sighted and misguided. And you will end up on the wrong side of history. And the writer actually tells us the outcome in verse 21. You might have missed it. He says that Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. Who's King Cyrus? King Cyrus is the king of the Medes and Persians who smashed Babylon, brought it to its knees 60 years later. But Daniel remained. The God that Daniel worships, our God, 
is sovereign. As Nebuchadnezzar himself will learn, only four chapters later, listen to the words of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, chapter 4, verse 34, I bless the Most High, that's the God of Daniel, and praise and honour the one who lives forever. For his sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does what he wills with the host of heaven and the inhabitants of earth, like me and you. And friends, we live much further down in history, we know more of this sovereignty of God. Because we've seen the Lord Jesus Christ come, the Son of God himself, humiliated and destroyed. But, not defeated, he was handed over by God himself, handed over for our redemption and raised to life above all thrones and powers, even death itself. When Christians are thrown to the lions, does that mean God has lost control? No, that only happens when God decides it will happen. And one day Christ will return. And all who have persisted in opposition will be expelled. And those who've trusted and hoped in him will remain. There's the context. What happens with Daniel and his mates? Well, what we see is essentially a program of assimilation by the Babylonians on Daniel and his three friends. Nebuchadnezzar chooses the the top guys from, from his kingdom, including from among the exiles, fit and clever and handsome. And he gives them three years of what you could call the best education available. It's like they went to Oxford or Harvard or something like that to prepare them for the life of leadership in the public service. We're told, picking up in verse 3, the king commanded his palace master, Aphpanez, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and nobility, young men without physical defect, handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, competent to serve in the king's palace, They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. That is, they were to be educated in the ways of Babylon. That would include philosophy and wisdom, but religion and astrology as well, science, all paid for by the king. And this process of assimilation, I'm sure in this education there was no mention of the God of Israel. He was completely sidelined and left out, irrelevant. There was no Christian education here. It was thoroughly pagan. And they were given new identities. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. as part of the assimilation. They had to be educated for the three years. At the end, stationed in the king's court. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. And the palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abendigo. Now, it doesn't come across so easy in English, but their, their original names all had the part of the name of God in their name, Yahweh. But their names are changed to reflect the gods of the Babylonians. Each name has a reference to one of those gods. A friend of mine, <coughs> who is a very avid Dockers fan, named his sons after Dockers players. Uh, you know, there was, there was Nat, uh, there was Matthew, there, there was Daniel. Imagine I came along and renamed all his sons with West Coast Eagles names. Nick and Liam and, and Dean. 
Like that, that really is changing their identity, isn't it? And that's what they're doing to Daniel and his mates, giving them a whole new identity. Educated in the language and culture, they're, they're becoming Babylonians. It's all laid on. They're recruited for the best career they could ever imagine, especially for deportees. The first stop, the three years at university with a full scholarship, eating at five-star restaurant every night. Now, what should they do? I don't know about you, but my inclination is to say, Daniel, please don't do this. This isn't the best way to go. Others, I suspect, would be saying, Daniel, just go for it. I can't believe the good fortune that God has, has laid on for you. Well, what do they do? Well, in many ways, they go for it. They go along with the education. They go along with the name change. It seems like Daniel doesn't have a problem with those things. Or maybe he feels like he's got no choice. But verse 8, there is something he won't go along with. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow himself not to, uh, not, uh, not to defile himself. He resolved, it's a very strong word, he determined in his heart not to do this, not to eat and drink the royal food and wine. Instead, he said, please just give me vegetables and water. Now, it's a bit puzzling as to what the issue is with the food. Is it to do with the Jewish food laws? If you know the Old Testament, you know that God said some food is clean, some unclean. Is he defiling himself by eating unclean food? Well, that's sort of possible, but wine was not unclean. So why did he say no to the wine? Maybe all this food had been offered to pagan gods, to pagan idols, and it was about not eating that food that had been defiled in that way. Well, it probably was offered to pagan gods, but the vegetables would have been as well. So that doesn't explain it. Is it about vegetarian diets? Daniel is the hero of vegans. There was a book that came out, I think it was about 15 years ago, called The Daniel Diet that recommended to Christians that we all get on board with Daniel and his diet of just vegetables. The passage, sorry, the passage points us, though, in a pretty different direction. See, consistently it talks about food from the king's table. It's royal food and wine. It's not about the diet, it's the source of the diet. And this idea of eating from the royal table, eating the king's food, is, is a well-known thing in that culture. It comes up again in chapter 11 if you want to look it up. And what it indicates is that when you eat from the royal table, in a sense you're giving loyalty your loyalty is being bought by the king. If you eat at his table, his food, then your, your allegiance is to him from then on. And we have a very similar thing in our corporate world today. There's a saying around, which I've heard many times, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And you probably know what that means, don't you? If you're in a position of maybe handing out contracts or anything like that and one of your clients who wants a contract offers to take you out to lunch or give you a free weekend at Roto or send you to, to, to Hawaii for a week's holiday with your family, there is no such thing as a free lunch. There, there are strings attached to that. They're buying your loyalty. They're getting you to owe them something by offering something for free, but it's not free. 
And that's what the king was doing with Daniel and his mates. To eat at the king's table means that Daniel is no longer his own man. And if he's no longer his own man, he can't be God's man either. Daniel recognised that to eat that food was to compromise his loyalty to his God. Now, notice what Daniel is doing is actually quite risky. This is a stand that could cost him his life, but he resolved to do it. He drew the line and said, here and no further. I will not compromise my allegiance to God any more than this. And he also realises that it puts others in danger. In verse 10, the palace master said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king. He's appointed your food and drink. If he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men of your own age, you'll endanger my head with the king. Daniel asked the guard uh, whom the palace master had appointed over them, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables uh, to eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. He's aware of the potential consequences for his master. And so he works out a way of keeping his resolve with minimal danger to others. He doesn't make a great scene out of it, but quietly negotiates a way to keep himself loyal to God. And how does it work out? Well, it actually works out brilliantly. Verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter. Fatter? I thought they'd want to be thin, but they were fatter than all the young men who'd eaten the royal rations. So the guard continued to withdraw the royal rations and wine and gave them vegetables. These four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. God, Daniel also had insight into visions and dreams. It actually worked out so well. And the writer gives us clues to that. God was at work giving favour to Daniel from his master. God was at work giving them knowledge and understanding. As they studied, uh, they outstripped all the rest at work in the hearts and minds of the officials and in Daniel and his friends as well. By God's work, Daniel sort of out-Babyloned the the, the Babylonians. Now, if we take this as a promise from God that when we're loyal to him, it will always work out successfully, just pause for a minute. Because in chapter 3, three of these guys, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, end up being thrown into a fiery furnace because of their loyalty. In chapter 6, Daniel gets thrown into a lion's den because of this loyalty. It didn't always work out brilliantly for them. Andrew Thorburn, he was sacked. But even in Babylon, God is at work. He is God. Even in Perth, God is at work in Cottesloe, in your workplace, in your community, in your family. For some of us this past week has shown us, as I said before, that to be a Christian in Australia is dangerous. It's like Daniel and his mates living in Babylon, a small, vulnerable minority out of step with the tide of our culture and our community. And that is never an easy place to be. It's scary. It it makes you anxious, understandably. So what does this passage, this chapter, have to say for us? 
Well, it means, I think, that if we want to be loyal to Jesus, if we want to be a Christian, which means being loyal to Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, that needs to be above and beyond any other loyalty. Does that mean total withdrawal from our community? No, that's not what Daniel and his mates did, did they? They took, undertook that pagan university education, but they did draw a line. They drew a line where loyalty to God was at stake and they were not willing to compromise that loyalty. Now, it seems to me that it's not always obvious in our complex lives where exactly to draw the line. Some of us might draw the line by saying, I don't want my kids to go to a government school. I'll only put them into a private school. And I can see why people would do that. Some might draw the line at Sunday sport. No, I won't let my kids do Sunday sport. I want them to come to church. Now, personally, I'm not sure that the Bible gives us an exact place to draw the line. We need wisdom. We need clarity. But I think it's clear from this chapter and many other places, a line must be drawn somewhere. I think the workplace is probably where this is coming to have the most pressure for us at the moment. (coughs) It's often the place where Christians now will have to draw a line. I think when I was a young graduate, starting work as an engineer, the sort of two places where I felt I had to draw the line was around, one was sort of what I'd call selling your soul to the company, where they would demand more and more. And in the end, if you just went along with it, they would own you lock, stock and barrel. You had to do whatever they wanted because you were so enmeshed, you'd so bought into the rewards they were offering, the salary, uh, the promotions, that you couldn't say no. I think it's always been true that for Christians, uh, there's a line to be drawn around corruption and sin at work, whether that might be making up false minutes for meetings that never happened or paying bribes or any other corruption like that. But now I think there's another huge area in which compromise is inevitable, or at least the pressure is there. And it's, it's the whole area of inclusion and pride days and all those sorts of things. So that's where Andrew Thorburn ran uh, onto the rocks. And as Christians, as people who want to be faithful to Jesus, if that's you, you will have to draw a line somewhere in that, where you say here and no further. Andrew Thorburn was given an ultimatum. And he said, if I have to choose between my dream job and my church, I choose my church. And he explained a little bit about how he became a Christian about 20 years ago. And his loyalty to Jesus comes above everything else. That's the workplace. But it's not just the workplace. These issues are playing out in families. I know people whose families are divided over whether they affirm uh, gay marriage. It's going to happen in conversations at the tennis club. It's going to happen in conversations at the cafe. And one of the things we'll need to work out is, at what point do we say here and no further? Because to say nothing is to compromise in the end, I think. Is to say, no, I, I don't care. My loyalty to Jesus is not above me wanting to be accepted by my friends or my family or this community. But I want you to notice the way in which Daniel went about it 
was, in one sense, as quietly as he could. He didn't make a great scene of it. He went and negotiated in the background. The letter of 1 Peter in the New Testament is written to Christians in a very similar situation. And Peter, in, in, as he talks to these Christians, in a sense he says that he encourages them to be like Daniel, to know who they are. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. Know that that's you, whatever names that the community gives you, that's who you really are. And in your behaviour, as aliens and exiles, abstain from the desires of the flesh that war against your soul. Conduct yourselves honourably among the Gentiles, so they might, even though they malign you as evildoers, they may see, see your honourable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. It's what a theologian has called soft difference. As Christians, we're different. We can't help that, and that difference will become more and more obvious. But we do the difference softly. We're not trying to make a huge show of it. We're not trying to put people down. No, in grace and love, we draw the line and say here and no further, but softly. Just live such honourable lives that when they want to malign you, when they want to call you the bad guys, when they want to call you vile evildoers, bigoted, our behaviour shows that we're not. Many of us are aware of the pressures, the pressures to keep quiet, the pressures to compromise. Many of us know that we haven't drawn the line maybe where we think we should have. And it's very hard to retrieve once you've let it go, once you've compromised. This week I was reading, reading Mark's Gospel and the, the fascinating and, and heart-wrenching story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he's crucified. And he prays, Father, take this, this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. He resolves that even though the cross will mean his death, it'll mean going through hell, he resolves to do his father's will, to be loyal to his father, come what may. He goes back and he finds the disciples. What are they doing? They're fast asleep, just had a full meal, lots of wine probably, but they were asleep. And he says, keep awake and pray lest you fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And after Jesus is arrested, the lens falls on Peter. And he's there following Jesus from a distance. And a little slave girl says, aren't you one of Jesus' people? Peter, no, not me. I'm sure you are. No, no, no. Not, not me. Three times he denies. He falls into temptation. His loyalty to Jesus, when it's tested, crashes and burns. But Jesus died for Peter. Jesus died for those who weren't loyal to him. And after his resurrection, he calls Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? He asks him three times, and Peter knows what it's about. It's about the three times. And Jesus gently restores him, forgives him, and commissions him. How do we stay loyal? Well, knowing the mercy of God that Jesus was loyal enough, like Daniel, to save me. But I think verse 2 is the key for us as well. Daniel knows that God is God. Whatever happens, God is sovereign. 
And when he feels small and vulnerable, when he knows he's a tiny minority, and he's tempted to think that his God is small, his God is sidelined, his God is embarrassingly old-fashioned, he knows that's not true. See, when God feels small, guess what? Our culture feels big. People in power feel powerful. It's, it's sort of like a seesaw, isn't it? I know seesaws are banned from kids' playgrounds now. They're too dangerous. But you know that how a seesaw works? If one side goes up, the other side goes down. If, people, if God gets smaller in our mind and heart, other powers get bigger. And Daniel knows that that's not true. God is God. And every other power is under God. He's not a mouse. He is the God of heaven and earth. Amen.